Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. But yeah, we can get, you know, so Douglas Campbell, Stanley Horowitz, Brad Jerzak. We need to promote you, Matt, to program director. What's the pay like? Oh, man, it it comes with all kinds of perks. Yeah, what kind of car do you like? Please, I'd like a bowl, (laughs) only M&M, also like a moist towelette, warm. I'd like it warmed. I'd like a York peppermint patties. I'll get my, I'll have my people get right on that. I, I like whenever the, the towels are are made into like a form of two swans kissing. It makes me feel welcomed. Yeah, yeah. We have an origami specialist who does all the folding for our, our special. Oh. Yeah. You got back problems? Yeah, I got back problems. I got sciatica. I'm getting old. What are you, 40? I'm 42. 42. 42 and a half. Yeah. And I'm just every day, you know, my my technological ineptitude is getting worse by the day. My joints and muscles ache. I'm shuffling around. <laughs> I think I think you're doing, getting a little pre premature there. I don't think 42 is when all that hits. No, I got it in my head like that time that that Japanese doctor told you that you were. <laughs> And you just put your robe on and just started shuffling around your house. And you, yeah. <laughs> you took it in your heart that it was all over. And he was just completely wrong. You know, he just completely got it wrong. But you, you just, it's the psychosomatic, I suppose. But some of it's real. I mean, you know, we're just getting older. We sometimes get hit a certain age and we think we should creep along. I, I wonder if I'm really feeling it this much or if I'm just playing a role. <laughs> Dan, how's it going, buddy? Hey, Matt. Hey, guys. I'm very well. Thank you. Hey, Janice. Hello. Well, Janice, we missed you last week. Yeah, I was flying home. You're you're a wonderful addition to the class. Oh, I appreciate you saying so. I don't know that I'd say that, but I'm enjoying it. You know, what's your tradition now? What's your kind of background? Right now, I, I don't have a tradition. Okay. The background of my youth was Nazarene. Okay. Then we, you know, just evangelical, various churches as we moved, had our family. Kind of got suckered into a Calvinist church. <laughs> Which oh. I now regret, but we spent over a dozen years there. Brian can tell you all about. It. Brian, are, are you and your brother? Are you Southern Baptist? Well, sort of similar to Janice. Uh, yes, Southern Baptist by background, but jumped around a lot. Had several different. I've been to the extremes of Calvinist and Presbyterian uh, explicitly, read about all five points of Calvinism and pretended to swallow them, I guess. What kind of church or tradition are you a part of now? Again, like Janice, none really. I mean, my, my family and I most recently were in a vineyard church. Before that, it was a non-denominational Christian church, sort of the seeker service, seeker-friendly kind of experience. Hey, I'm going to be rude. Can you folks hear me? Yeah, yeah. Is that you, Jim? I didn't know. I just <laughs> there's just a telephone there. Help me uh, create a way, some different ways to think about. On page two, you write the re- reconstituted unconscious. So my idea there is the fear of death or death drive, however you want to call this, 
that there is this unconscious drive. And by unconscious, you know, does it rise to consciousness? It may on occasion. The basic formation, I, I think I'm doing several things here at once. Freud says that there is no mortality in the unconscious. That is confirmed in several places. First of all, I think that shines through or shows through in the philosophical impetus that you get in Platonism, but in many forms of philosophical understanding, that they posit an immortality. So that's, that's the first thing is that we're talking about death drive, death instinct, fear of death, you know, however you want to describe this. And what is taking place in Romans chapter 8, it is not that the unconscious is obliterated. There is this unconscious formation, but in the depiction in Romans 8, it's depicting the Holy Spirit, you know, that the mind of God and the, the Spirit, the Father, that there's this interchange, and the interchange concerns human inarticulateness, that is, that the beyond words. And so what I'm suggesting here is that literally the drives that compel us, that may be unconscious, you know, I, I think a lot of what we're talking about when we're talking about law and the way that this law impinges upon our life may not be completely open to human consciousness. Literally what Paul is describing in Romans 8 is a reformation, there's still this unconscious. And so if you think in terms of how the consciousness or what I'm reading, how I'm reading the, a lie, a lie always involves a thing that is denied. In other words, the reason that you lie, there is something that is repressed or covered over. You know, that's there in the Genesis passage, but that's there throughout in Scripture talking about sin in terms of a deception. But that's also there in Lacanian psychoanalysis, that Lacan says the unconscious is structured like a language. That is, he's tracing the way that this kind of the formation, that this is Freudian picture of dreams and symbolization, you know, that what is taking place in the human unconscious is still linguistic. It's still, still language-like but it's a repression. It's the underside of language. And so what I'm suggesting is that that repression, that neurotic kind of suppression is undone, and that there is a reformation, or should be. I, I'm not assuming this is magical or anything like that, but I think that the, being a disciple of Christ, there is literally an, an addressing of neurosis, suppression, repression, that that is relieved in the human psyche. And a little picture that came to mind while you're talking is... Oh, please. Like, imagine you have a, a kitchen sink full of water, some balloons in the water, and you're trying to like to keep those balloons down. It just becomes an undoable action. You just can't, you can't manage it. Yeah, that, that you can't keep the balloons down. 
And of course, that's the thing with repression. Who's the comedian, Steve Martin, you know, he's in a film. He said, you know, I'm not, I'm not neurotic as he's washing his hands, you know, the, the way that neurosis comes through. And I, I'm just presuming we're all neurotic. In other words, we don't have access to our own neuroses. We may suffer from our neurosis and we may experience the suffering, but the genealogy or the etiology, however you might say that, where does this thing come from? Why am I so neurotic? I don't think that we have access to that. And what I'm claiming in this is that I think that we can actually uncover. In other words, there's no grand mystery in this. We often think our what we repress or our neuroses are the most interesting thing about us. And this is what Freud's point is. Well, no, actually, everybody looks the same in the unconscious. That neurosis mm. always looks the same. It's going to follow the same pattern. And that's partly what Lacan means, that the, the unconscious is structured like a language. That is, he's going to compare it. It's almost mechanical. The least interesting thing about us is our neuroses and these drives that we may just think that is who we are. Part of what we're describing is recognizing that has nothing to do with who we are. That is this kind of a mechanical force that just flattens everybody out so everybody looks the same. That's a characterization of evil. You know, we often in the movies, the evil people are often the most interesting. It's very hard to portray good people in film, but but I think that's right. kind of a deception because I think evil actually flattens out so that everybody is just when goodness is drained out, everybody looks the same. It's like black cows at night. You go to work and someone talks about a, an episode of Friends, some show that people want, or like The Office. Everyone that watches it finds it funny. We share some common ability to laugh at things that we would never talk about publicly. Yeah, and they may be tapping into this kind of shared world, which, by the way, you know, and it works fine in a shared cultural understanding. Humor is one of the things that just doesn't translate very well. So in Japan, you know, you tell a joke, nobody laughs. Then you say, that's a joke. Then they all laugh. So, <laughs> but that's what you're describing. There's this shared world that in some way, a comedian, I mean, that's the thing about comics is that they can often tap into a very tragic and dark side of human personality that is a shared world that is, if you can stand back and look at it, it's ridiculous. I don't know how many times I've heard a comedian tell a joke and I'm laughing. I'm thinking, I shouldn't be laughing at this. I shouldn't be laughing at this. Yeah. I have a friend who was trying to be a comedian for years and he got out of it because he said all the comedians were so terribly depressed and dark out when they weren't doing their routine that he just couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of these people are real dark. There's a blog way back there somewhere. I talk about Andy Kaufman, who is the, who's the act Jim Carrey, Carrey. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, who does the, the, the movie in which he portrays Andy Kaufman. And of course, Andy Kaufman, why is he funny? Some of this is just, terrible you know and jim carrey then takes up the character and jim carrey describes the experience as it almost drove him crazy because he inhabits this character to such a degree that andy kaufman and of course andy kaufman had a character remember the lounge singer who's kind of a rude that's usually who jim carrey is portraying and he's just a rude nasty guy what is humor? What is it? Well, it's this kind of things that are in quotations, you know, that, that we all stand back and, and look at. 
And of course, my, the point of my blog is that what is happening in Christianity, I said Jesus is a joke. And what I meant by that is that in the Old Testament, the name of the son of Abraham is Isaac, right? Do you know the meaning of the name Isaac? Laughter. He who laughs. Isaac is a type of Christ. And of course, Abraham and you know Sarah, they, they both laugh. I think we misread that that we think, oh, that was kind of a moment of unfaith. But of course, the point is that the, the laughter is, this is an impossibility. It's not that they don't believe it, it's just that this is so bizarre, this breaking in, this apocalyptic breaking in. And I think that's the sense that Christ is he who laughs. Here is the true Isaac. Here is the true son of Abraham. Here is the one who is breaking in an ap apocalyptic sort of way. I think that it should, in fact, I think that it should give rise to this capacity for joyful laughter that is touching upon the very depths of human consciousness. I just assume that if we, as theologians, if we don't laugh a lot, we're probably doing it wrong, that we're tapping into something that is just joyous and wonderful and kind of like humor, it is a redirection. You know, why is why are things funny? Because we're thinking one direction, and then suddenly a joke or something comes in and breaks it up from a, another perspective. And that's the way I see the, the work of Christ. There is this breaking in to a kind of container that's sealed, and there is the breaking over the open of this container. And I think this can, pertains to human unconscious. We can get so absorbed in the unconscious or that, that those neuroses or whatever's happening there, death drive, are giving ourselves over to the law, to the systems of this world. It can become so all-consuming, we can't suspend right. that in, in a humorous fashion. There's a book called Shantung Compound. I can't remember when the Cultural Revolution was in China, and they're rounding up all the expats, and they put them on a train. The guy that wrote this book is like, he's trying to connect the idea of uh, starting a new system within the prison. Not exactly a prison, just call it a compound, just a holding place, so they figure out what to do with them. They're in this train, and he, he said, the guys that are in the car that he's in, or you can tell, you can read their faces, they're thinking about home, and they're thinking about where's next meal coming from. Just to break the monotony of being with these folks, he starts walking through the train, and he, he's a couple cars away from this train where all the monks have been gathered and put in this car. He said, you could hear the monks just laughing like two cars away. They were just treating it like a party or some sort of a new adventure for them, you know? Yeah. Bernard Graham went and studied in uh, Germany. I don't remember where Bart was, but he wrote a book, Beyond Fundamentalism. And the last chapter of his book is called The Laughing Bart. And he says of Karl Bart, he was just the funniest guy. We don't think of Karl Bart, you know, that staid old theologian. But I, I think that humor is a very serious thing. It does something, that laughter does something. And I think it should be that, that what we're describing is this breaking open of a kind of deadly incapacity to get out of our own shell of despondency. And yeah, so I think that, I think that hits it. Just to look at it, Paul, I was just hoping you might be able to give me a quick summation of what you're doing. So this chapter is pretty ambitious that if I, when I rewrite this, partly what I need to do is break down the chapters into smaller chunks.
And so I'm trying to do several things and maybe trying to do too many things in this chapter. Obviously, you know, step one, the, the first article pertains to contractual theology. The, the way that Anselm and Calvin, but I think much of Western theology, that the way that sin and salvation are def defined are in terms of the law. And as I read it, there is just a misunderstanding of what the significance of the law is and how salvation interacts with the law. So, you know, this is Anselm's whole point that the law is the expression of the honor of God, and Calvin takes it. And, and I, what I would say is, no, that's just a, a complete misreading of the New Testament, that the law does not encompass the economy of salvation, that the law is a pointer. This is the way that Paul talks about it. And so the human predicament in regard to the law is not that there is a contract and we've broken the law of the contract, and therefore Christ is sent and he, he meets the contract of the law. That sets up the whole thing as if it's a legal arrangement in which we failed in the legal arrangement, and now Christ has succeeded. But my point, and I, I, this is just there, I'm not saying anything original, is that our problem is not that we haven't kept the law. Our problem, though, is our orientation to the law. That is, the way in which we would have the law function is precisely illustrated in and through Anselm and Calvin. They make the whole thing a legal exchange and a kind of legal fiction. That is, that we would always make the law the arbiter of everything. Sin and salvation is the whole thing is in and through the law. And of course, the whole point of the New Testament of who Christ is, is the law, the punishing effect of the law is suspended, that life is not in the law. And that's the tendency of the Jews is to see that there's life in the law. And so in this sense, Calvinism and divine satisfaction, they just aggravate, they are an example of what I take to be the universal human predicament, that all people would imagine that they can gain life in the symbolic order. And by that, we've just said human institutions, human systems of value, uh, wh whatever that might be, that we would make our mark. We imagine that we can gain life being substance in and through the law. That's our problem. That's not the solution. And so the solution is to get over and recognize there is not life in the law. That's the death drive. That's what it has a grip on us. And so that's step one. And this is something Douglas Campbell has spelled this out very nicely in his book. You know, he compares contractual theology and an apocalyptic theology. And I think that's the difference. In a contractual theology, everything just remains the same. That, oh, we, we know what the problem is, and now Jesus is the solution to the problem. In an apocalyptic theology, it is, hey, we didn't know, we don't understand the problem, and Christ is breaking open this whole thing. It's not contract, law broken and kept in a contract, but it's the undoing of identity through the law, imagining that we can gain life through the law. So that is step one. Step two, then, is I take that a step further. I see that not just simply as the human predicament. I say that that's the source of evil, that what evil amounts to is 
these systems of law. Now, this may, this may just sound strange to you, but you don't have to think very long. Which is more evil, you know, and uh, think of a system like Nazi Germany. That people, you know, what uh, Eichmann and all of the good Nazis, they did these things in good conscience. Or think of the Apostle Paul as a Pharisee. What was Paul's problem? You know, we often picture Paul that he had a guilty conscience, and then he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, and his guilt is relieved, and he accepts Jesus. And so this is the way, you know, this is kind of the way we do conversion. But wait a minute, that's not Paul's depiction of who he was as a Pharisee. He says, I was perfect in regard to the law. I excelled my contemporaries in every way. I kept the law without blemish. In other words, it is the law, it's the legal system, it's his Pharisaicalism that causes him to, in his own description, be the chief of sinners. Paul is not the chief of sinners because he seared his conscience, Paul is the chief of sinners because in good conscience he set out to destroy the church. And so human morality is immorality. That's a Freudian take on the superego. This conscience, you know, the thing that that punishing conscience, that's not the drive, you know, if you, you know, this is Gemini Cricket, just let your conscience be your guide. Well, wait a minute. It turns out that your conscience is a formation. It is a construct. And in fact, I think the depiction in the, in the Bible, it's not a good construct. In fact, if we just buy into systems of law, religion, culture, you know, whatever you want to call this, the, the symbolic order, that this, in fact, tells us how evil arises. The worst evils that have been committed have not been the lone, you know, we, obviously we got in this culture, we got all the lone gunmen out there killing people, but it's the systemic genocide in which, you know, just take, just count the bodies to count the amount of evil. And what we're going to see is that war, genocide, murder, uh, those things arise then through systems, systemic evil, you know, radical evil is the wrong word here, but let's use it for the moment that radical uh, evil arises in conjunction with the law. At one level, we can see, oh, Paul is doing these things as a good Pharisee. But the underside, the dark side of this, is that so too does every people who are transgressive of the law are also following the law. The law is determinative of both the top side and the bottom side. And so this is why, you know, the serial killers or people, you know, that we can do, this is the discovery. The, it's fairly recent that the FBI has said, wait a minute, these serial killers follow patterns. They follow patterns because they're, they're following a dictate. They have to do it in a particular fashion. And so in both sides of this, I think the darkest part of human personhood or what is not personhood in reality, that we empty ourselves out in these system in this kind of systemic evil connected to the law. So that's kind of the dark part of this chapter. If you put that together, what I'm ending up saying is if the cross of Christ is to confront evil, and what we've done, in fact, is make the cross just one more legal system, and our problem is the law, then I'm afraid that human religion, and by religion, I think religion is always the undergirding of culture. 
human religion and culture is subject to the worst kinds of evil. You mentioned psyche. It's an omnibus term for human thought, will, and emotion, also for the essential core of man, which can be separated from his body and which does not share in the body's dissolution. To me, this is like stepping out. I see this as a fork in the road. You're able, or this, this idea of a separate reality, which is carried into the future, somehow is not part and parcel of who I am. That's one direction to go. And the other direction is somehow capture or maintain all this in your own personhood as a person in which this is, it can't be separated. It's like everything's homogenized. The definition of psyche, what I would say is that that's a sick psyche that imagines that it's a entity apart from the body. And so that, in fact, I think is characteristic of the sick psyche. That, that we picture the human thought or human psyche as a realm apart. But of course, that's a lie. That's a deception. This is in Freud, you know, that Freud is going to tie, you know, this is why I appreciate Freud in part. He ties everything back to embodiment. But this is also in philosophy, Wittgenstein. But if you just want to go with theology, just go back to the early church did not have this. They had a very embodied sense of what a human being is. And so that's why in Christianity, you're only saved through resurrection, through bodily resurrection. You know, Ignatius says, oh, you know, these heretics who imagine that the soul departs the body at death, maybe their prayers will be answered and they'll become evil spirits. I think he's being ironic, but what he's saying is that apart from your body, you do not have personhood. So I think the sick psyche always pictures itself as this kind of separate entity, this thing that, you know, my body and my I are very close, but we've gone our separate ways of late. I am not my body. I have a body. That's not the truth. That describes the sickness. Now, unfortunately, that sickness is reinforced in a bad theology which pictures souls going to heaven, that pictures salvation as a departure from the body. But understand that is the primary false teaching that the early church was up against. The Docetists, the Gnostics, they all held to this lie that what it means to be saved is to escape, as Plato said, the prison house of the body. The soul is imprisoned by the body, And so this is Greek thought, but I think it's just pagan thought, that in some way we picture the body and material reality as a, you know, secondary reality. I think that is the the sickness that we're describing. The incarnation of Christ is directly aimed at the human disease, because our tendency is toward disincarnateness. Our tendency is to absent ourselves. And of course, you cannot love your neighbor, you can't love yourself, you can't be there for other people in this kind of disincarnate tendency. That again, once you privilege the law, you know, you can privilege the law in any number of ways. The way we've done it in modernity is to talk about the transcendent truths of reason. You know, that was many modern Christians. They think, oh, let me prove Christianity to you. Uh, It consists of these transcendent, irrefutable arguments. I'm just going to use pure rational arguments. I'm going to convince you, you know, that who Christ is, it just taps in. Well, that's that's very Platonic again. 
And of course, the whole problem is that it has nothing to do with Christianity, the incarnation of Christ, and the embodied nature of truth, that we can misdefine or misunderstand the psyche. Help me get a handle on this term, Trinitarian trace. I just mean by that, that I assume that we were meant to be in relationship to God. And Paul is going to define, even when he's describing the sinful failure of the self, he uses a tripartite self. He's going to talk about the mind, he's going to talk about the body, and, and, and I presume that what he's describing is filled in then with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is, I literally think, and that's the way chapter 8 unfolds in Romans, that our relationship, our participation in God is a, is a Trinitarian participation, so that we find ourselves in the place of the Son. And that's a very different way to talk about faith. The way that we often talk about faith in Christ is that Christ is the object of our faith. And this is Richard Hayes, but before Richard Hayes, you know, the idea is not that Christ is the object of our faith, but that we are in Christ, that we inhabit the place of Christ in relationship to the Father. And so we cry out, Abba, Father, when we find ourselves in the place of Christ. So it's not faith in Christ, it's the faith of Christ. That's Richard Hayes' argument about the Greek, you know, that we've actually mistranslated the Greek understanding here in, in many or most places. You know, we, we've pictured it again as a kind of ob object outside of ourselves. Well, wait a minute, the whole point is that we inhabit this, that who we are, is going to be discovered by taking the perspective of Christ toward the Father through the Spirit. And this spiritual experience is life. So what is the trace? Well, the absence of the Spirit is death. What's the ab absence of Abba Father? It's the law. It's this punishing law. What's the absence of the Son? It's the ego. That's a false trinity, but it's still a trace of the real thing. Paul, I was, I was wondering if kind of this soulish idea of humanity. I, I, I'm wondering uh, where this took place because it doesn't take place in the Old Testament, right? And obviously, the, it doesn't take place in the New Testament, although I think people read things into the New Testament. Is this some of the fight that we see early on in like uh, John's letters or something like that? Is it, is it Augustine or is it you know, where does this really take off? I see Gnosticism and Docetism as a type. In other words, I think it's the perfect prototype of human failure. As far as I know, that if you go to any primitive culture, what do a, what a primitives believe happens to, to the dead? Well, they worship the dead. Why do they worship the dead? Because the dead aren't dead. Their spirits are still here. So in Japan, you know, maybe one of the most ancient, you know, surviving religions is Shintoism. And in Shintoism, you literally go out to the graveyard, you make offerings to the dead, and you venerate the dead, because at death, your spirit lingers. And what the spirit is, you know, is very unclear. It's very vague, but it could be the soul in paganism. It's, it gets very ambiguous. So I think this is just the again, the human belief system or impetus that literally that we do not accept the reality of death. And that is the major thing I think that's happening in the Hebrew Old Testament. 
again and again, you know, go back and look, you know, there, most places when it talks about the dead, it's just that they're gone. They, the, from dust to dust, they've been annihilated. You know, there are some places where there is, you know, maybe survival, but mainly it's a depiction of non-survival. That's over and against Greek culture, but I just think that's over and against most cultures. So docetism and Gnosticism are the teaching of that is a turn to Platonism. But Platonism, you know, this was Mercia Eliades. I'm never sure how to say his name, but he was kind of the religionist, uh, the father of modern religion. And that's what he says about Plato, that Plato is just summing up pagan religion, that it's not really a departure. And so Valentinius and the Docetists, yes, they're Platonic, but can we point the finger simply at that? I, I think it's more pervasive than simply that. I think they're just falling back into pagan patterns or human failure, failed patterns of thought when we begin to talk about the soul as the primary essence of what a human being is. That is exactly what, you know this, Dave, that that's exactly what Paul is not saying. So when he talks, you know, in Corinthians about the psychikos, you know, here's the word, the soulish human. The psychikos human is the one who is not spiritual. You know, in the modern evangelical understanding, if you said somebody was, you know, full of soul, well, that would be, oh, they must be real spiritual. But when Paul says the psychikos human, he's saying, no, these are the people that don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't, they're not spiritual. Everybody's psychikos human apart from entry into Trinitarian participation. Now, you know, do you want to blame Augustine? Do you want to blame Plotinus? Maybe, maybe, but I just think that's the turn that we're always up against. Is that disappointing, Dave? No, it's not it's not disappointing at all. I don't I don't always want to pick on Augustine. I, I just trying to figure out how it got off track so so quickly, you know, because I mean the very things that you're talking about, like we give life to the dead now as soul somehow there's there's something um that we worship the soul of of the dead now which uh ultimately does you don't really need resurrection i was finishing reading chapter five today but i've really enjoyed these last couple chapters i don't know that i fully understand it but i enjoy it well <laughs> great <laughs> you know when i when i get obscure i don't think i'm saying anything different i'm just trying to illustrate it in a different way can i throw another thing at we were talking about the law um i don't know if this is pushback or not you know because you spoke a lot about the law in this chapter couldn't somebody say well listen eichmann Pilate, whoever they they came up with bad laws there's good law and bad law how do you begin to answer answer something you know maybe, i don't know does that question make sense or yeah it does how do we get the Germans? You know, how do we get the Nazis? And I don't know if this is fair, but a lot of people would point to Immanuel Kant and Kant's categorical imperative. Kant's categorical imperative is I would only do that which I would will to be done universally. And so there is this picture in Kant that we have access to this basic universal morality, that we can encode this. You know, Kant says, what is the primary Active, you know, to do your duty. You know, think of the German people doing your duty, keeping the law. You know, you can't break the law. I think it was in this chapter I referred to Alenka Zupanichik, who is a an associate of uh, Slavoj Žižek. 
And she goes back to the Marquis de Sade. You all know, I hope you don't know a lot about the Marquis de Sade. <laughs> Too much. Yeah, because he's the guy that we get sadism. He spent most of his life in prison. He really enjoyed hurting people. He, he got a pleasure out of that. And so he, he uh, comes up with his own categorical imperative. I would will to pleasure myself to the fullest, and I will that, you know, it's my will that everybody does the same. Alenka Zupanichek's point is, and by the way, Kant saw this, that you can take Kant's categorical imperative and come up with what Kant calls radical evil. Radical evil is the idea that there is just this some ontological ground for evil. You understand that the atheist thinkers like Zizek, Hegel, they do believe in radical evil. They believe that it's evil is the source of the good. You know, this is really what Hegel's talking about. What you're saying, David, it sounds, oh yeah, we could make some good laws, but a law-bound people are precisely the people who killed Christ. And that's my point. I, I felt like I didn't do enough with that in this chapter. I really think that's what the trial of Christ is about. It's a challenge to Roman law. It's a challenge to Jewish law. It's a challenge to this absolutizing of law as if the law functions apart from what it means to be a human. And actually, again, here, Lacan is very insightful here, because what we get is this, this, this departure from being human. Once you enshrine the law as an end in and of itself, it becomes this kind of a punishing force. You know, this is, first of all, this is our personal problem. This thing in my head that is punishing me, is that good or bad? Is that from God or is that from somewhere else? If you think that's from God, I think you're going to go crazy. I think that literally people are driven insane because they imagine that their conscience do this. You have to do this. That, that they, if they think that's the voice of God or they treat it like the voice of God, an unbreakable law, that's where you get pure evil. So what Christ does, and maybe what you're saying, is, is that Christ doesn't disable the law in the sense of a contractual theology, which is what most people say is uh, they'd have it in a contractual theology and, and say, you know, whatever the, the works, and you don't have to do the works anymore. But it's, it's really the Christ disables, in a sense, the orientation that we have to law. Is that That's a it. good way to say that? That's it. Well, just pass me now in the class then. Yeah, yeah. And you understand, I, you could almost say this, and I could say this in such a way that you would think I'm describing penal substitution. And the reason I want to say it this way, because there are places in Scripture, you know, think of what's happening in Romans 7. Is the guy that Paul is picturing, that eye there, is he suffering from punishment? Oh, yeah. He's punishing himself. He describes this as an unbearable punishment. But that's not God doing that to him. That's him. That's, that's evil. That's this orientation. And then he, he says, thank God that, you know, this, that we've been relieved. So there is the sense that we are relieved of the punishing effects of the law through Christ. But not because that's God's righteousness, but because that is the very source of the human disease and sickness and, I think, ultimate evil. What's really disconcerting to me is, again, going back to my, my Calvinist experience, I just totally felt like increasingly 
that they were going back to the law, but they didn't know it because the, the, the talk is all grace, grace. But in my own mind, all I could see is, but what you're really saying is that it's all about the law. Yes, you're saying Jesus kept the law, but you're still saying that that life is in the law. The, the rest of your chapter, it just it just depicts these people. Everything is very legalistic. Everything is so weird to obey the civil authorities, whatever they say, because they're instituted by God. And by the way, that also means you're to obey your husband because he's the authority God put over you. And you're to obey me, the pastor, because I'm an author. I mean, it's all about authority and power and rules. And to even challenge that just shows how wicked you are. So it, it just like totally puts you back into Romans 7, in my opinion, that yeah. how dare I challenge anything my husband or my pastor or my elder or my denomination says is true and right, and I just need to shut up and do what I'm told. It, yes. it was very, very frightening. Yeah, no, that's it. And I, I hope this doesn't cause too much cognitive dissonance. I always believe the love of Jesus is going to break through, and you know, but I'm afraid that we're in a moment in history. It's no mystery that what is evil in the United States is directly tied into evangelical religion. I think for most people that has become obvious. And I mean evil in the sense that let's build the wall, let's keep those foreigners out. And also you little suspicious about anybody that's not white. I think it's inherently racist. I think this moment in time, it may be quite confusing because what I'm describing as the New Testament is an indictment of the evil that we are presently witnessing. I just think that that's the human predicament. We always fall back into these systems, and that's, that's always the thing that we're being saved from. It is a process, and the process is one that we're only gradually realizing. But I, I realize that this chapter could be, well, it is dark. I don't, I don't, there's no way around it. It didn't come across dark to me. Oh, good. <laughs> good. I hope there's joy in it because I think we've got a misunderstanding about who God is in the situation that we're in. Because once we throw off this weight, you know, what we're always driving toward is love. In other words, what we're describing is always this, it's an obstruction to love. You can't love somebody that you're going to oppress, enslave, subordinate. Think about the how the, the law of Christ with these atonement systems, which is, of course, the law of love, gets sort of inverted. That they're, that they're saying that what we're safe from is God, right? So the love of God is displaced then at the very heart of the atonement by wrath, anger, law, the thing that gets obscured, you're, the whole thing that you're describing with the symbolic order is that something, or, the, or with a lie, is that something's being obscured. Well, that something, in this case, is God, and more specifically, the love of God. Yes, and so absolutely. What, and, what is, and, what is, and, what, and so in the lie, the thing that's being obscured, the truth, is the love of God, and it's being displaced with uh, whatever you want to call it, law, wrath, anger, vengeance, death, satisfaction, you know, there's all these different ways that we can talk about, but what's hidden and what people need to know about the most, of course, is the love of God. It gets literally lost, I think, in, in, in the whole religion. And that's, you know, just go back and read First John. If you fail to love, you're still dead. 
but he who loves his brother. In other words, those are your choices. And I, I think what we're describing is a failure of love, that we're describing obstructions to love. This may be disturbing if you've placed your hope in institutions and power arrangements, you know, where some people suffer and some people are raised up. Uh, Janice, the whole complementarian thing, I think is just a prime example. And Rob can tell us how this played out in Australia, that they were so committed to complementarianism, to women being subordinate, that they actually changed up the Trinity. Yes. In Sydney, they, they literally came out with a heretical statement about the subordination of the son to the father as a confirmation that women should be subordinate to men. Right. The other thing that gets obscured, of course, is peace, you know, right? So in the context of this class, that what is, you know, the love of God, the peace of God, that in the cross, it's the violence of God, right? That the father is literally doing violence to the son. They deny this if you talk to them, they say, oh, it's not. It's not that. I think that it is that. You know, that in other words, the peace of God, the love of God is being displaced by the law of violence that manifests itself in these systems of thought. And that's the thing to kiss, keep before your mind. You know, David, you said, can't we come up with a law? And I think that the law that we would inevitably enact is violent, that we're doing violence to somebody, you know, that it, it is in, inevitably a system, a systemic violence. And by violence, you know, let's spread out what we mean there. Oppression, exclusion, you got to build a wall, you got to, some are in, some are out. I think that the symbolic order is always oppressive, exclusive, and violent. And so when we talk about Christ relieving, suspending, you know, the language that Paul uses here, don't get confused. The problem in the Bible is not the law. The law is not the problem. It's the orientation. Don't mistake what is being said here. Paul never. Paul says the law is holy, just, and good. Law is perfectly adequate for what the law is meant to do. What's the law meant to do? It's a tutor. It's between the covenant, you know, with Abraham, and it's a tutor to bring us to Christ. I don't know that the law, does the law reveal sin? No, I don't think so. I think it just aggravates sin. In other words, this is where I think Calvin misreads. He thinks, oh, well, you know, they sinned, and then God gave them the law, and then they realized their sin. Oh, really? No, I, I don't think so. I think the law just aggravates the problem. The Pharisees are more sons of hell than anybody because they imagine they then are the true keepers of the law. Right. Are you familiar with dominionism? You probably are. Run it down for us. You know, they, they, maybe they call themselves Reconstructionists now, but just the, the concept, and it's very, for a very conservative, diehard Calvinist, my pastor was this sort of person, they believe that eventually what the kingdom of God on earth is going to be is going to be a reestablishment of the law. And they're, I mean, they're literally looking at going back to stoning people who commit adultery, uh, bringing back... I just, I really think they literally picture themselves as kind of a, the Israel, the new Israel that's going to rule the world. And that yeah, they, Roman Catholicism is called integralism. It's the same thing in Roman Catholicism. It's called it? integralism. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's it's basically the establishment of you know throne and altar style Christendom. Right. I, Scary I, stuff. Scary yeah. stuff. Two quick thoughts, questions. 
I've been reading Gerard and I'm having these questions. Dang, if I'm not afraid to tell anybody <laughs> what my thoughts, I mean, I'm having doubts, you know, like, why do we have this piece of wood up against the wall behind the pulpit? What does that represent? We sing a hymn washed in the blood. And but what takes over is is this. I, I don't want to rock the boat just for the time being. I'll, I'll just participate in this group think I'd rather be safe than like ask a question not being able to to put the question in the words so I just wondered Gerard talks about mimicking mimetic mimetic. yeah the idea of like modeling looking at exterior I'll just conform I'll just go along you know just to go along just get sort of used to that and that's the way Gerard is picturing scapegoating the scapegoating mechanism, what we're describing are just overwhelming. The The movement of a crowd of people or a movement, it's very hard to resist the crowd because that's, as children, we learn through mimesis. We, we learn through imitating others. Mm-hmm. Gerard doesn't deny that. His point later on is, well, actually, mimetic desire, that's just human, but in Christ, then we have the model that we can imitate. We are describing things that are overwhelming. When the crowd turns on the scapegoat, as they turned on Christ, I mean, what we would like is to imagine that we could stand up to the crowd. And of course, that's what all the apostles thought, that the way that they would do that is the way of Peter. You know, we understand pulling out the sword and whacking off heads, but what Christ did, that's the capacity that we're given with the Holy Spirit. But I think even that, I don't think that we're describing an individual capacity. I think that we're all still dependent on on other people. We're dependent on a community of people that have an alternative to a peaceable alternative. That's the way people are, that we function as a body. That's the New Testament image. But I think that image is is such that it is over and against the political body, the principalities and powers. You know, I think that's what Paul is talking about, an alternative culture. And so we need to ground ourselves, but be aware of the sense that it is over and against. And can one find that sort of community in today's world, in a so-called church? Because if you know one, let me know. Quakers, maybe? I've been attending Quaker Group for almost two years. I'd say we're trying to find traction in that direction. I think we'll be the first, at least the meeting house I go to, will be the first to admit that we haven't really got a good grip on it. Uh, one, one of our members, well, actually, he's, he's been in the meeting since 76. Uh, one day he said, I wonder, like, we, we look back on the Quakers and their abolitionist underground railroad, their activities during the Civil War. So I wonder what people will say about the Quakers 100 years from now. You know, I don't have any grand answer, but uh, can I say that I think a group of people like this is part of the answer? But of course, David would have us just come to Indiana. <laughs> I'm poisoning them slowly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just got a glance from my wife across the room, so I'll have to explain that remark later. <laughs> oh, she uh, thinks that she's taking it personally. <laughs> she's taking it. She's not sure who I'm poisoning yet. Yeah. Uh, or how, at least for me, that is somewhat of the method. And we're, you know, I'm trying to help cultivate that type of community, but it's not easy. But, you know, we take victories where we can, small victories, small steps, and maybe hopefully have patience with others. Oh, it was a Charles Spurgeon quote that the center of Christianity is the cross, 
the focus of the cross is atonement. I know what he's pointing at. He's pointing right at, you know, Calvinism right. uh, and uh, penal substitution and all that. I think the Apostle Paul would probably go a little bit further in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says of, this is of most importance. Uh, and he talked about uh, the death, burial, and resurrection. Spurgeon, he stops at the cross. And, of course, he and I have disagreements on, on what the cross does. Uh, he, he certainly would be in the, in the uh, God pouring out his wrath rather than some type of defeat of sin. You know, Jim, your problem, and I think David, what David's describing, that in Calvinism, we really just need the cross. In fact, that's Calvin says as much. Sometimes Calvin's better than Calvin, but really you just need the cross. But of course, I think the mistake is that once you do a legal theory, the cross is the center of that. But if we see the primary problem as an orientation, an orientation to the law, an orientation to death, then we can see the whole life work, the incarnation, the life of Christ, the teaching of Christ, and certainly the passion and death of Christ. This was, this was the thing I found fascinating in somebody like Ignatius. He talks about the passion. He says, if you believe in the passion, you believe in the resurrection. And what he meant by that, the Docetists were denying that Christ suffered. Boy, that sounds familiar, because in notions of God that you know, would split the person of Christ into two, the deity in Christ can't suffer. The divine aspect of Christ can't suffer because of divine impassibility. Right. There, it's just a return to docetism. Ignatius just says, if you don't believe in the passion, if you don't believe in the suffering of Christ, you're not a Christian. He says it more insulting than that. You know, he says they themselves don't exist. That is, they're deluded about their own existence. They're deluded about being Christian. In other words, if you don't believe in the suffering, the death, the bodily resurrection of Christ, Ignatius says, you're not a Christian. He says they may call themselves Christians. You know, this is kind of what we're surrounded by. If you ask people, you know, how are you saved? Resurrection is a long way out there. And of course, what you're saved from is not so much death as punishment, future punishment. What we lose is a very, in a very simple gospel, there's an organic connection between the life, death, resurrection of Christ as it pertains to the human problem, because it's our own misorientation to death. It's our own denial of death that is undone in the person of Christ. Would it be safe uh, to say, Paul, we, we have the order wrong? I, I think I've heard this from you before. We have focused on sin first and death second, and so that you know, death is a result of, of sin. Rather than, and I think um, as you're going through Romans, I think he says, he talks about death first, and sin kind of comes, comes out of that. Because if we talk about death first, we realize that, okay, I mean, is sin an issue? Of course, it's an issue, but the, it's not the issue that we think it is. Death is our issue, and that's what we have to be rescued from, death. So how, how are we going to be rescued from death? And of course, you would say the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, all of those Whereas if it's just simply sin, then you just go to the cross, and it's, it's just simply the cross. The cross deals with sin. That's know? it. That's it. Yeah. Sometimes, David, you say things better than I do. Well, sometimes I just say dumb things, too. So No, I, I think that that's exactly it. 
Which is it? The sting of death is sin, or the sting of sin is death? I know the right answer only because I've been over this with you before. (laughs) (laughs) You would think, the natural thing for you to think is that the sting of sin is death, but it's actually the sting of death is sin. That's what the scripture says. That's what the Bible says. And yet, it's almost like we can't say it that way, because that doesn't make any sense in our theology. Because our theology is so skewed to imagining that sin is our main problem. Sin is a kind of symptom of the main problem, which is death. And that's why the New Testament can talk about the defeat of death. Death is the last enemy. John will pose death over and against love, that you're dead in your sins. That is, sin is a relinquishing to death. Death reigns, and sin is then in some way a a giving up to that reality. That reality is undone in Christ. That's why the resurrection is the defeat. You know, Paul talks about in Corinthians that really with the resurrection of Christ, the power of death, you know, what is the power of Satan? It's the enslavement to fear of death. Hebrews 2, 14, and Romans 8. You know, what's the power of Satan? It's very specific. Satan has the power of death. Not that Satan says, you, you're going to die, but Satan manipulates fear of death. Now, whatever you believe about Satan or the satanic character, the biblical depiction is that that only gets up and running in conjunction to a misorientation to death. Paul, I have a thought. You know, whenever I, whenever I hear, when we start talking about law, I start thinking about justice, right? Like naturally, when you talk about law, you think about questions concerning justice. But normally the way that we think about justice and when the law is broken, we think in terms of punishment. And so we think in terms of punitive treatment of the breaking of the law. And of course, there's a whole tradition, maybe even in the scriptures that we take that from. But of course, Jesus comes along and says, go learn what this means. I I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And so that comes, he's quoting the Old Testament, right? To what end does God punish? Is it a punitive sort of vengeance that God is taking upon the lawbreakers in Christ? Well, I don't think so. I I think that it's remedial right? That the punishment is always because God is good, because he's a good father. He doesn't just punish just to inflict pain or suffering or vengeance, but he punishes with a view towards correction like a good father would. So there's a couple things there, right? That God is good, that he has a good end in mind for his children, but we don't think that way, right? Like our human way, that, that in other words, that's been displaced. What I just said has been displaced by our law courts here in the United States and our world. Human justice, all too human justice, has displaced the love of God, has displaced remedial sorts of dealings with criminals. You know, so our, so our penal systems, our dungeons, you know, where we don't do much to actually help the prisoners to reform them and, you know, help them to change and things like this. We just throw them in the dungeon and really they usually become out worse because of the conditions. But I think that we do that because we think that that's who God is, right? That God's going to throw people into hell. That's where they deserve to go. They've broken the law and justice is served through the punishment of, of God. And so I say all that to say that I, I just don't think that that's 
the God that's revealed in Christ. And so if the whole discussion about law, that's how we think of it. Is that like, well, if you've broken the law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, you, you deserve to go to hell. And so what Christ did is he came to take that vindictive punishment in our place. If we make that move, we're committing ourselves to a whole bunch of other things, right? But if we say, well, wait a second, Christ came to institute a whole new vision of justice, the love of God, the mercy of God, you know, it's not to say that criminals aren't, Jesus says that, you know, that some of us will be beaten with many blows, some of us will be beaten with few blows, but what are they, but it's to, it's an, but what's the end? It's like, it's correction, right? It's union with God. It's for our deification. It's we're, we're his children. Is I think that we've displaced the love of God, the goodness of God, the good, the beautiful, and the true with a sort of human notion of what the law is, of what the, the end of what it means to be human is. And we've displaced peace with violence. And we think that the whole way that our salvation is accomplished is by the Father and the Son involving themselves in this sort of I got like a violent sort of transaction that leaves us kind of out of the whole thing. And so I guess that's just, a, just to kind of put that out there to say, well, when we think about law, I think that what we're either talking about usually is some, in some way justice. And so if we get justice wrong, and if we get, you know, what it means for God to make things right, you know, that, that that's, I think, a Christian understanding of justice is to not just pay them back. That's the word, right, in Greek, that it's to actually to make things right. Yeah. And so that to me is, is a bet, is a bet like a more worthy vision of, of the cross and of Christian theology, you know, where, where Christ is actually not just satisfying a law that's kind of like external or something that God is beholden to that he himself has to serve in some way, but that Christ is coming to undo that whole under, uh, whole understanding and says that go and learn this. He says it to the Pharisees. I desire mercy. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. So that goes back to that Girardian thing that, that Jim and Brian and other people have been talking about. So if he's undoing that, then he's undoing notions of human notions of justice and of punishment and uh, of all these things that we've displaced. And of course, in our displacement of that, it's resulted in the oppression and death and destruction of millions and millions of God's children in the name of God. I've never done a study of it. But I'm convinced that the retributive justice, I mean, our law system, uh, I, I think that it flows from a bad theology. It's just a, a misunderstanding of what justice is. And I think that begins with the misunderstanding of what biblical justice is. Yeah, so we're relieved of that. You know, has Calvin given us a different religion? Well, I think he, he has. And part of that religion he's given us, he's ingrained in us a notion that some sort of retributive punishing justice is part of God's law. And of course, that goes back to George MacDonald's is kind of brilliant. He takes that apart. That, that makes no sense to, to imagine that things are made right by somebody suffering. Right. No, that, that didn't help anything. Yeah, we would abolish these people. We would just throw them into prison, get rid of them. And we think that that's what God does too, that he just gets rid of people. He throws them into the dungeon, into the hell, into the dungeon, into the Gehenna, and just leaves them there, right? It's like, I, I just don't think that that's 
worthy of the of the glory of of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that he's preaching that God you know I was just reading earlier I think it's in first Timothy 4:10 that God is the savior of all human beings so there goes calvinism Sorry. you understand this was what I learned in seminary my professor was not <laughs> calvinist out overtly he thought he was anti-calvinist he said well there's two things that God he has there's God's wrath and there's God's love and these are in conflict in God. These two attributes of God are in conflict. And so what Christ does, he resolves this conflict in the Father. <laughs> that's, that's wrong at so many levels. First of all, wrath is not an attribute of God. Love is an attribute, and wrath is pictured as flowing out of the love of God. In other words, love is the primary. That, that's the only definition. You know, the, the only thing it says is that God is love. There is the wrath of God, and the writer of Hebrews describes that, as you did, Matt, as a discipline. This is so deeply, because this is kind of the way we think. You know, I like to see the, you know, as David says, boy, you know, crush their teeth, you know. We like to see our enemies suffer. Yeah, but to project that onto God is to make God as evil as we are. One of my favorite parts of the reading in chapter four was uh, on page eight, and I don't even know what to say about it, but I it just kind of stopped me in my tracks was the space opened up by encounter with evil that draws us to the cross. Yeah. I feel like that's worth dwelling on. And I think you also pointed point to it in the, uh, the sermon about didomy and the giving, the giving and making space for and connecting for the person of God, the person of Christ with relationship to the father and it's sidesteps all the things, law, we meet God when we realize the, the the brevity or the limited nature of all these things, and somehow evil being mixed into that just sort of wowed me a little bit, and I certainly haven't got it all pieced together in my mind, but I know there's something good there. Yeah, if you've got an explanation for evil, you really don't need Christ. Mm. The friends of Job had an explanation for evil, and that was their problem. Their theodicy was their problem. John Calvin can tell you exactly where evil comes from, that it's in the providence of God, that he uses evil. His is a pure theodicy. And so I think any time that we get a theodicy, you understand this was kind of the drive in apologetics. You know, what's the primary problem? The problem of evil. Oh, let me explain that to you. Well, if you can explain that, if you have a principle, if you have a theory, if you have a theodicy, well, you've just done away with the work of Christ. Because that's why I think Christ came, is to defeat evil. And so rather than a principle, a theory, a theodicy, what we have is, is Christ come mm -hmm. to defeat evil. And so I really think that's our choice. Do you want an explanation, or do you want the real-world defeat of evil? Yeah, and I think the reason why it, it hits me, uh, and Matt could testify to this too, is that when you step into the emptiness of someone's life, and therefore into your own life as a, at the bedside as a hospice chaplain, there's something that just rings true about what is being described there, that the, the suffering and the, and the closeness of death is a, is a special opportunity in a special place. And, uh, you know, and, and even our own suffering and encountering injustices. I, I can't say that full-throatedly because I'm not of any oppressed demographic, so to speak, but I'm, I'm in tune with it and aware of it a lot because of 
uh, not just my work, but because of the people I, I read and associate with theologically continue to point back to this is important. This is important. This is this is part of the pattern of sin and being associated with the victim. I find it very fertile and powerful <laughs> and an argument in and of itself. There's no reason to try to get the logic straight, but just to keep pointing to and living into it is is pretty powerful. I think that's where we encounter the Holy Spirit. That's where we encounter the the love of Jesus in a way that otherwise we can. It's been a good good meeting. Dan, are you happy with everything? I am. Thank you, everyone. I want to get you to sign off. Get your imprimatur on. Yeah, if Dan doesn't if Dan doesn't agree, then I don't want I don't really want to go along with it. <laughs> no. Most- I'll, I'll- <laughs> I won't give you a monologue. I I do agree. Okay. (laughs) All right. We'll see everybody next week. Bye. Thank you. See you guys. See you guys. Good night. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.